Hello. What? Oh, man. Sorry, I was just looking at our run sheet, and I saw the... Oh, no entry. Oh, I had to say, I had to scroll up there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you got the cold open. Here. Yeah, yeah. I will lose. I started at segment one. Um, wow. Well, welcome back. Uh, I've been awfully interested lately uh, about one of many rolling issues that Facebook is is trying to handle at the moment. Um, not the not the major information hack, which seems to have resulted in, in <laughs> random friend requests being sent out. Uh, but, I think I think everybody. If you're if you're not getting information hacked, you're just not doing it right anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what, bro? You haven't been information hacked yet. Yeah, it must not matter. Yeah, this is the new social media. It's like uh, it's like getting tattoos or something. <laughs> exactly. Like here are all the identities we lost, and here's that Chinese symbol that I'm not sure what it means. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I just listened to a thing in Marketplace Tech the other day that was talking about it. I think if Facebook were a religion, it would be the third largest religion on the planet. Hmm. That's a pretty dopey religion if you really think about yeah. it. <laughs> the, just, the, just the semiology of kind of, uh, you know, just the uh, visual language, like cats really play a strong role in kind of the, the, the deity indicators. Yeah, well, that's true about a lot. I mean, cats have, have shown up in kind of deific discourse for a really long time, but um, but have grumpy cats. Uh, no, that's that is a new god, and uh, <laughs> that is a new god. As as you know, a, a pseudo techno religion, uh, Facebook also has to have its commandments, which is to say, thou shalt oh, yeah. not post X Y Z content. Um, mm. And this oh, is what actually what are the Facebook commandments? Well, uh, no nipples. <laughs> As in you shouldn't have them or you shouldn't show them? You shouldn't show them. Although that's been, um, there, there's been a lot of back and forth on this as there, there has been a, there's been a little bit of mission creep on the nipple front where uh, apparently <laughs> activism over time has edged uh, towards, you can now, I believe the current state of the field is that you can have a partially revealed nipple. But uh, what I'm actually really interested in about is it, once you are moderating an, an enormous amount of content like Facebook, uh, how do you determine what stays up and what doesn't get to stay up? In, order, in other words, ah. what are the sort of ethical guidelines and parameters for what gets, uh, what is allowed to stay within your platform? Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. That's interesting. So you know, we're we're now in, uh, I guess, week two. Uh, that's generous to us because I think we might have skipped a, at least one week there. Uh, by the way, our, our our publishing cadence is probably going to be more this season on every other uh, week for a variety of reasons. Um, but you know, we're we're already in week two on um, the revolting machines, and it's worth pointing out that this week, actually, we might be talking not a whole lot about machines, or maybe talking a little bit about how we're moving towards uh, kind of a key aspect of how we're starting to consider enabling machines, specifically around what we see, 
yes, and what well, we don't see. And and just to clarify, the revolting machines thinking about how we give machines power over us. This is the the broad topic for the the season. But as we're able to get uh, experts, colleagues, basically anyone who'll give us the time of day to talk to us, <laughs> uh, we'll engage those discussions where possible. So. Um, Expect when it's you and I speaking that will be revolting, uh, but otherwise it will actually be quite pleasant. So yeah, so well, so the, I guess this point about Facebook moderation though is really is an important one to consider uh, when we start thinking about I guess how information enters our lives and the I guess the consequences and maybe the unintended consequences of kind of information flows. Yeah, um, and control over those information flows. Yeah, and I think one one sort of mindset that I've used in thinking about something like a web portal that you're accessing through your phone or through the computer is that initially I used to think about this as sort of a, a portal. Like imagine that you're mm-hmm. in a submarine and you look through this little circular window and outside of you is the entire ocean, this, you know, the sea of information and, and activities and events and this sort of thing. That's, mm-hmm. that's one way of imagining what happens when you're looking at a web portal. Another way is to imagine a museum where actually you walk up to a curated piece of information and that information is tagged and structured in particular kinds of ways. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about the tension between these two things because, in fact, at no point when you're looking at a web portal are you looking at uncurated information. That information <clears throat> is allowed and structured to be in front of you and delivered to you. Um, so perhaps the museum model might actually be surprisingly a little bit closer to what you're doing when you're looking at that supposed sea of information. Well, it's interesting. The, right. I mean, it's, but I guess the question of, of the presentation of information back to you, um, it's interesting the idea of there's kind of a tree falls in the forest concept around this. Uh, the, um, I guess the social thinker, I guess he's a technology thinker, uh, James Glick, um, or Glyke, I don't know which is a G-L-E-I-C-K. He wrote this book, um, The Information. Um, a while ago, I think you just read, recently read another one that he wrote, I think, on time. But this one he wrote on, on the information, um, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things about it. It's, I'm not summing up the book here. I'm talking more about, um, but just kind of the history of when what we think of as, as now as contemporary information actually becomes almost like a, a, a physical thing. Um, if you think about the idea that, you know, 350 years ago, most of what we call information now wasn't actually capturable in any way. Mm-hmm. Like most of the most stuff that was passed from one person to another in the form of communication or um, uh, discussion or something basically went into the ether. If I said something to you, unless I sent it in a letter, um, generally speaking, it, it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're almost in the opposite place where everything kind of gets gets captured in some way, shape, or form. Our text messages, our emails, our, um, I mean, conference calls. I mean, it's like meeting notes. Even our it podcasts. Feels like <laughs> even a podcast. Our hypothetically like, we, heard we, by somebody. <laughs> exactly. Well, in some ways, that's the operative point. Are we being recorded? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope so. Um but in some ways, you know, it speaks right to a point, which is when you capture all the information, 
it's you it's not clear that you've gotten actually that much more value out of it than if you captured no information because mm-hmm. if you can't access the information and you can't find it there's not it's not any more functionally valuable than um if there was none to begin with in terms of it's not captured to begin with and i think you know that's where we really get to this question of of content moderation and content um you know serving up content because it's it's if it's not being so the content isn't necessarily being like you're not using that museum analogy it's not like someone's walking through and saying i want this article right here to be the one that you see mm-hmm. but in some ways in theory in, and even sometimes in practice that does feel like what it is and it, and there's and there's specific ways in which that happens in order for that information to be the information that you end up finding um, so suddenly content moderation is now at the point where content moderation and content production are almost have the same operative value. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'm, I'm going to give a third term to my extended and potentially useless analogy. Um, <laughs> if a museum is perhaps too controlled and the ocean is too limitless, perhaps what we're thinking is something like an information aquarium. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I always I always picture the information I'm looking for as being that like little sucker fish that like tucks itself under the rock a, and you a, can't find for, a for days and you're not sure that it died. Yeah, exactly. I remember when uh, you lived with us for uh, right out of college and you, you stayed in that other room, which I think we never went into because <laughs> I think you worked on a farm and it was it was maybe not sanitary in there. Um, but I remember you, you, you built out this, this kind of beautiful aquarium. Yeah. Um, the Placo was my favorite fish. Yeah. It was a, what is a albino? It was like a white little kind of rhino headed Placo. Right. Around on the grass right. all day. Right. Well, that's, that's how I feel when I'm looking for just that piece of information five minutes before a podcast that I need <laughs> to be able to cite just, you know, in one possible incident. So this is this is all a lead up to uh, introducing our interview this week, which is with uh, a, a very brilliant colleague of mine who I'll introduce more fully in a moment uh, in the actual interview with her, Dr. Kate Halterhoff. And she's doing this thing that that we're talking <clears throat> about. I mean, if my analogies have, have, have proven so vague and vacuous as to be relatively useless in thinking about how information is curated or taken care of or delivered or monitored in a, in a web space, she's actually doing that with a, a really interesting site called The Visual Hagrid, which she will describe in just a moment. Hello, everybody. Today, I have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Kate Holterhoff. And uh, geez, man, I'm not exactly even sure exactly where to start introducing you. She is, uh, at the moment, uh, a Britain postdoctoral fellow at the Georgia Institute of Technology and one of my colleagues. Uh, you may know her from a bevy of, of publications somewhere like Digital Humanities Quarterly, English Literature and Translation, the Journal of Victorian Culture, the Journal of History of Biology, uh, and the list literally goes on and on. Uh, you've done all kinds of stuff, but I'm really interested in talking to you today about your uh, maybe central project. I don't know if that's the right term because <laughs> it seems like you have 13 or 14 of them. Um, Visual Haggard. So welcome. All right. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Toby. So do you want to take a moment and just describe what Visual Haggard is? Because I, I, I don't know if the, the broader public has a deep sense of Ryder Haggard. Sure, I'd be happy to. So in 2013, I started a digital archive called Visual Haggard, which uh, came out of my dissertation work on adventure fiction and uh, the 19th century romance. And I just became more and more interested in the fact that a lot of these 
adventure fiction books, and especially those by H. Ryder Haggard, were illustrated. And I learned that they'd been illustrated multiple times by multiple illustrators throughout their history. So you might have uh, a book like She or King Solomon's Mines, and uh, you could encounter, you know, up to four different versions of these illustrations, which have been created within the you know span of 30 years to accompany this uh, book. It was just that popular. And so I just kept digging deeper and deeper and, uh, you know, found uh, a web developer who was also interested in uh, learning a technology called Ruby on Rails. And so we built this archive together as a learning experience for him and for me as, as sort of an extension of my dissertation work and a way that I, you know, kind of uh, learned more about archival studies, information science, and the digital humanities more broadly, which I know is such an important buzzword in our, our field right now. Yeah, there was a bunch of words in there, um, and uh, maybe one of them I'd like to focus on very briefly, because this is a word that it got used with me when I was moving towards my qualifying exams, and it just completely confused me, and then <laughs> has confused me pretty much up until today, when uh, I was asked to locate what my archives were, mm. and I, I think for people in the broader public who even think about what an archive is, it's maybe something like a Smithsonian museum back room um, mm-hmm. with like, you know, full of skulls or something like this. Um, I was really confused about what an archive is. And it seems like a digital archive takes that already strange use of the word and kind of takes it to, to a logical extreme. So what exactly is a digital archive? Yeah, well, uh, an archive by definition should have a physical component to it. So many archives, so whether that's, you know, a sort of library or um, out of a a museum, they will have records of everything that is kept in that institution. And so, you know, I think, you know, beginning in the 80s, but, you know, certainly uh, more and more as these technologies proliferate, uh, people have been interested in creating uh, these spaces for collecting, critiquing, curating uh, objects in a in a space that isn't physical at all. So in the case of Visual Haggard, uh, many more traditional archivists would not call Visual Haggard an archive because it doesn't exist in one place. Um, so I actually have a field on the archive itself that says where the actual institution is uh, that I collected these um, objects. And to make things even more complicated, um, so with the illustrations, anybody who's scanned a book knows that the, the um, they look pretty terrible. I mean, for one thing, uh, the you can see where the spine is very dark, and the uh, margins are tend to be very uneven. And if you start dealing with older books, you find that a lot of times there's foxing and all kinds of watermarks on them, and they just don't look very nice. They, nice. they haven't uh, you know survived the years as well as uh, we would hope. So. Uh, as a digital archivist, an important part of what I do is not only to, uh, you know, locate this information and record the metadata tags that would uh, help us to identify and search for specific editions or artists, uh, because, you know, Haggard worked with uh, a number of different artists repeatedly. Um, but I also uh, upload the images into GIMP, which is an open source um, image manipulation program, uh, which is an important initiative at the archive that, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that everything was um you know, it could be, uh, you know, was using technology that wasn't, um, you know, didn't cost any money and that was, um, you know, as, uh, I guess, sort of um, ethical and democratic as possible. So with GIMP, I was able to edit the images much like a Photoshop file and regularize the margins, remove the foxing, and create these sort of ideal images that don't exist in real life. So any image that you see on Visual Haggard is actually 
uh, a fantasy. They don't exist anywhere. So all that is to say that a, a, you know, a digital archive is, is one that um, is kind of pushing the boundaries of what a traditional archive has done in the past in the sense that it doesn't exist anywhere. And it really becomes a sort of fantasy about what, you know, that interprets a body of information in new ways. Okay, good, good. That's brilliant. I think that's really nice. So the archive is, yeah, it's like this sort of strange, like the fantasy of the collector. And I'd like to return to sort of the use of the archive after we touch on Haggard specifically as okay. an author and yeah. as like a focal point for a digital project. Um, for those of you who haven't read Ryder, uh, Haggard, uh, if I'm correct, the character of Indiana Jones yeah, is influenced or, yes. or is out, out of the genealogy mm-hmm. of these sort of figures that go into uh, uh, heavily orientalized or primitivistic spaces mm-hmm. and then do sort of white man's burden style work in, yes. in these places. And that part of the result, especially given the time period that he's writing in, in the 19th century, um, and the location of, of his a lot of a lot of his writing would be recognized as participating in in I mean, really, really problematic discourses concerning race or imperialism or paternalism or misogyny mm-hmm. or this sort of thing. Um, so I'm actually really interested in, in hearing you discuss why it's so important to preserve this fantasy. If this is a fantasy, part of what the fantasy is, is this the imperial fantasy of the other and this kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I have a lot of uh, issues with. And I think most of the writing that I've done about the digital humanities has actually tried to grapple with that. So, um, yes, certainly. So H. Ryder Haggard invented a character named Alan Quartermain, who uh, reappears in a number of uh, you know mediums. I think uh, Indiana Jones is probably the most recognizable. Um, but uh, also in uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where the you know main character in that is Alan Quartermain himself. Um, so, yeah, it, by teaching and re- re- preserving these images um, of uh, this, you know, white explorer in Africa, we uh, also perpetuate and archive uh, racist depictions of Africans, um, a glorified uh, vision of what white uh, explorers and imperialists did in Africa, specifically. Um, but then also a lot of uh, violence against uh, animals that are now endangered. So we see a lot of elephant hunts. That was Alan Quartermain's uh, profession, was an ivory uh, hunter. And um, and then also problematic treatments of women, and especially the, the native women uh, in these stories where they're often uh, you know, partially clothed and being ogled by men, which is an odd, you know, choice there, <laughs> but makes the, the purpose of these images particularly clear. I mean, it's obvious that they're there to titillate white audiences. So, um, yeah, so I, as I began the archive, became more and more uncomfortable with this idea. But I, the more reading that I did uh, from people like uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. Um, and David Pilgrim, I became convinced that veiling these histories um, does a disservice to them. And so, um, you know, that said, I, I know that these are not 100% my stories to tell. Um, and so I have done a lot of, um, uh, I guess, I've, I've implemented a number of initiatives in order to make sure that the community can talk back to them. So um, I could talk about this in terms of my pedagogy, uh, for one. But I mean, another way that I just, you know, have, have uh, integrated this is to um, include a discuss forum. Um, so that's D-I-S-Q-U-S um, on each of the images so that the public can talk back to these and try to push back on them. Um, I don't want in any way for this archive to seem like this sort of concrete and, um, you know, static part of history, but rather as um, material to teach us about the past without any veils. Um, 
And so I think when we think about um, remixes like Hamilton or, um, you know, so any artists that are, are trying to, you know, reimagine the past as a way to push back on it and, and uh, you know, remind us of, of the violence that happened then, but the fact that we can uh, take back these narratives um, is, you know, the best way to treat it. And, um, you know, there, there are some uh, images that I... Uh, you know, have, have found particularly problematic and have written about them. And they tend to be the ones that I show my students first because I feel like that's what uh, they need to see uh, to understand this history and the fact that this violence continues. And we can think about ways that we can, again, try to, try to you know, come back from it. I know Beyonce and Jay-Z just did a video, um, a music video in the Louvre where mm-hmm. they show depictions of African, uh, uh, you know, I guess, characterizations in art history. And they do that deliberately. They don't want to veil it. Um, you know, we don't want to burn the museums down, but we want to make sure that we're questioning what the museums contain. And so this is a good point. So um, I've been reading up a bit on, like, content moderation. This is a thing that's actually kind of a hot-button issue right now with places like Facebook, um, given that they're always trying to moderate content in some way or another. And apparently they have people in in a variety of places, like the, the Philippines is one place where I had an, an interview, who just spend their days moderating content. Hmm. Um, which is to say, looking at all the horrible things that people put on Facebook, um, like beheadings, rapes, child molestation, and this kind of stuff. And they watch these videos all day and then kind of do a thumbs up, thumbs down about whether or not this content should be on Facebook. Um, There was a good piece on this, I think at Radiolab uh, a couple weeks ago, but I'll double check that, uh, where it actually became a bit of an issue because the Mexican government was repressing all of these stories about local violence and murders that were happening. And so people started posting just cell phone videos of murders in order to show that this was a real thing that was happening. And then Facebook had to decide whether to repress speech in that situation and essentially de facto side with a repressive government or allow this content to be on the internet and then suddenly be accessible worldwide. And I think the video in question was a woman being beheaded. Obviously, you're not quite doing that, but you're a content moderator. Um, you decide what information should be broadly available. As you say, you try to go to the most troubling ones first in your own pedagogy, but this is also a, an online tool, like widely available. How do you juggle content moderation? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's still one that I'm, I'm, I guess, trying to grapple with. Um, I'm always curious to, to speak to people about it. Um, I interviewed David Pilgrim who uh, runs um, a, an archive of Jim Crow era art. Um, and, you know, it's racist memorabilia is how he frames it. Um, and, you know, he his opinion is that you don't put everything online. He said some of the most traumatic pieces in the archive he actually uh, does not uh, include in the digital archive because he's so afraid of people, right, racists, remixing that material. He says he doesn't want to see that, he, I think he said, on T-shirts or ashtrays. And, you know, and that really uh, spoke to me because, again, the Haggard Archive is more ideological. I mean, it was nothing uh, quite as overt, but um, my students, uh, some of them have written about how traumatized they are by some of this material. I mean, but even reading someone like Haggard or Kipling who felt like, you know, so I have a number of um, Indian students that felt like they're, uh, you know, that that these um, authors would have considered their ancestors to be savages is is traumatic for them and and they're not wrong um and so the best that we can do and the best that you know the you know big thinkers in race theory and people like yeah beyonce or you know um hamilton lynn manuel miranda 
uh, what they teach us is that we can, by reading these primary documents and becoming acquainted with what, with what actually happened in history, we can best fight against it coming back today, which I think is really the you know, the issue with what we see in politics, um, you know, we're acting like America was great. Um, and I think <laughs> it's worth noting <laughs> that, uh, you know, America's pretty great right now. And um, I don't know that we need to go back to a past where um, we idealize, um, you know, killing, you know, white men killing crowds of black people. I mean, it just really is, it's disturbing. Um, so, you know, and there's a lot of ways to view the archive in terms of art history. I mean, many of the images uh, have these pre-Raphaelite experiences. So when you think about the public using the archive, I try to be broad with it. Um, and, you know, I try to think about how it has art historical merit. Um, but I am deeply troubled by the idea that somebody would happen upon one of these traumatic images and not have the support to explain them. So, I mean, one of the tactics I took is... Um, the archive doesn't have any racist language embedded in it except for one place where the tag, uh, the, the actual caption is about a Kaffir girl. And so I included a note in that discuss forum uh, defining what a Kaffir meant and explaining that it's a racist term and um, you know, hopefully providing the information that someone who would just happen upon this image uh, using Google uh, that they would need in order to understand this and understand that it's hurtful um, but that this was a reality and that this is how a lot of these British imperialists would refer to uh, the African uh, people living um, in you know, South Africa specifically for that image. Has there been much discussion in these discuss forums? Um, some. I, I haven't. It hasn't been as lively as I had hoped. But I, I again, I use it in my pedagogy. So I, I, a lot of the responses I've gotten um, have been you know, from students who I've kind of forced to spend some time with the archive. Um, most of the folks who use it organically have been illustration scholars. There's a, not a lot of information about illustration artists. So I, I get many comments and, and um, you know, emails from folks who are doing research on illustrators, and they just can't find anything. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that commercial art is devalued by art historians and, frankly, by literary scholars as well. It's a sort mm -hmm. of um, you know, uh, taboo subject. It just really doesn't have a lot of excitement. Um, although with all the interest in uh, graphic novels and things, I, I'm hoping that that will turn around. Um, I mean, a lot of my own research has to do with the fact that um, graphics played a, an extremely important role in reading, especially romance fiction. So like Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories were all illustrated in The Strand. Um, and we act like, you know, that this wasn't important, uh, you know. But in, in fact, studying the illustrations, I would argue, is almost as important for understanding uh, authors like Haggard and, yeah, Doyle's characters um, and many others. I mean, it was, you know, ubiquitous. Uh, you know, Dickens illustrators get a lot of press from the Victorianists, but I don't think many folks know about it uh, other other than that. Um, but, you know, there, there are uh, kind of a number of different audiences that come to it, I think because it is this sort of liminal uh, area of study that is really only kind of beginning to gain um, ground in academics and also in popular culture. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in my own work, I did a, an article a couple of years ago on Dickens' illustrations and oh, David cool. Copperfield. Um, and one of the things that turned up in, in that period is that often when they were bundling, right, because Dickens wrote everything in these like little three or four chapter blurbs yeah. with, right. uh, with two pictures at the beginning. Um, but when they would bundle it into a novel, uh, they would drop most of the pictures and then reorganize and reshuffle the pictures that they did keep. 
um, if they kept any at all. I do wonder a little bit about this digital thing. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I got I got to Georgia Tech, and I, and I think I, I think I became a digital humanist, and I'm doing a, a podcast, and that's a that's a sort of a digital thing. I mean, sure is. Um, I guess what exactly do you feel like the role of digi- the digital is in in academia or in like interfacing with the public? Is this like a a changing of the way knowledge circulates, or is this just like another kind of navel-gazing activity for academics to do? Well, I think it's, I, I would call it another tool in our uh, tool belt. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to, you know, forecast the doom of our profession. Or, <laughs> yes. Um, but I would say uh, it, the screen culture has taken over, and I, I think that we all interpret the world through the glass of our cell phones and our computer screens. Um, so I, I 100% think that it needs to be integrated and questioned. And I think what's nice about a digital archive project is that it allows our students to meet the past in a form that they feel relatively comfortable in. Um, but that said, I um, it also affects my own research practices. I'm able to see these illustrations with um, extreme detail because I'm able to scan them and then zoom way in. Um, you know, I think, you know, we, we imagine looking closely at stamps or something, right? And now mm-hmm. we can just scan them and, and zoom way in. And it's, you know, kind of marvelous in that way because you see all these details that probably haven't been studied in the same way. So for me, um, I, I am, you know, loath to, uh, you know, speak on such broad um, subjects as that because I, uh, I just don't think it's um, one could know that, but I anticipate any instructor uh, has, you know, integrated it and, and some degree in order to meet their students where they're already uh, sitting. Um, and my research has benefited from it. And, it, uh, you know, maybe uh, frequent Facebook visits or, you know, um, you know, spending too much time, uh, you know, scrolling through Instagram has also been a distraction for me in my when I should be writing. Um, but I'm uh, relatively, you know, positive about it. So for me, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be positive with it. Um, but of course, I also have the same sort of anxieties I think we all have as we see our, you know, Facebook feeds filled with uh, political, um, you know, just scary political uh, stories and, and any other sort of, um, I guess, content that is, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know, that kind of shows the, the monsters in our, you know, contemporary closets. Yeah, and this is actually a good point. This is something I wanted to ask you about because you have this curatorial role with Visual Haggard. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me, and and this is the sort of thing we've talked about a, a bit on this podcast previously, that we're in this moment, maybe sort of like a, a pushback, where I think a lot of the major tech companies have have avoided forms of regulation up until this point. Uh, famously, places like YouTube and Facebook have been able to sort of negotiate with the government such that they're a channel, they're not a content provider, so that they're not actually responsible for any of the content that appears on their channel. Um, But it seems, as there are increasing consequences about the kinds of content that are appearing on these channels, and as places like Facebook begin to have an entire legions of content moderators, that they are expressing some kind of editorial control over their content, which is would make them a media company, and then prone to all the forms of control that media companies uh, deal with at the moment. Um, which is obviously terrifying to the tech sector to enter into that kind of regulation. If there is going to be some kind of curation of these various digital resources, do you see 
forms of like humanities scholarship as like a framework for ethical curation? Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess I would. I'm, uh, I think what concerns me more is where the money comes from, because hmm. um, as we worry about, uh, you know, the the internet uh, and you know certain sites that pay more money will be able to you know load more quickly. Um, you know, humanities projects don't have a lot of funding, so uh, you know Visual Haggard runs with zero budget. It's built again on all in all free platforms, um, and uh, so my concerns tend to be more with um, the fact that we're just going to be wiped out unless we can pay to remain relevant. Um, so. But I, I guess in terms of, um, yeah, Facebook and curatorial, uh, its curatorial role, um, I think that, you know, the humanities can teach some lessons about this. I mean, I think that it's, um, uh, it would be a gullible feeling to, to say that they're just providing, con that they're pro providing access, that YouTube is just providing access to content rather than, um, you know, sort of promoting it in a way. I mean, anything that, you know, one provides access to is in a sense, um, you know, you're also upholding it as being valuable in some sense and, and that you're, you know, that you promote it. So, yeah, so I guess my, my uh, you know, my gut feeling for it is as challenging as it is for these large providers to stay on top of what's being uploaded, that they have to take some responsibility for what it is and, uh, you know, anything that can cause trauma or that is, um, you know, harmful in some other way, uh, you know, that they would need to, uh, you know, have some means in place to either remove it quickly or to at least, um, you know, be able to, uh, you know, recognize it either through automated means or by hiring people to, uh, you know, look out for it to make sure that it doesn't um, stay on there longer than uh, necessary, that maybe we can weed it out more quickly. Awesome. Dr. Holterhoff, thank you so much for stopping by. This was really excellent. It was um, my pleasure. Yeah, and I hope I hope everyone else has a, a deeper appreciation of the, the, the complex stuff that goes into wonderful projects like Visual Haggard. Wow. That was that was some heady stuff. That's how we do it in academia. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about about the conversation that I think is really worth pointing out here because you guys get a little wonky in places. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I'm sitting on the sidelines watching like professional soccer thinking, man, I can't do that. <laughs> that's, that's daunting. Uh, yeah. So you guys, you guys, you guys like kind of get in your academic thing a little bit, but um, it just made me think about like what's so interesting about the site that she's running because she's uh, monitoring a site that is unlike Facebook, which is trying to ostensibly say that it is a non-political, like, you know, non-objectionable content. Um, she is monitoring, she is moderating a site that actually is almost explicitly controversial. Yeah. In fact, that's part of the reason why the, the, the archive is, exists, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and the the overarching question, which you can imagine, uh, sort of holding in your head throughout the interview, is what do we do with the parts of our history that we don't necessarily approve of? Um, are these still right. is this still information that we should be making av widely available? Yeah, should we be actively? I mean, it's it's not like um, it's one thing to say should we burn books. It's another thing should we say should we digitize those books and put them on display somewhere um, that are 
explicitly racist, sexist, homophobic, or whatever. Like, you know, I I always think it's interesting, like, kind of hearing sort of the theory behind the practice because it's actually like, wow, that is, that is what's being done. But uh, man, it just sounds so much fancier. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a difficult thing. I mean, there, there's a content moderation ho uh, issue going on in in several fields in academia right now as well. There was a, a hoax called uh, that they called themselves, I think, the SoCal Redux, or after this earlier academic hoax by this a scholar named SoCal, um, where they submitted a, a bunch of fake and ridiculous, you know, scare quotes, ridiculous. Uh, articles to to various journals in the fields of things like fat studies and gender studies and uh, animal studies and this sort of stuff to show how they thought that these fields were publishing ridiculous and often really mm -hmm. extremely biased critiques and and some of these things made it through the peer review process and were published right um, I always feel like if your objective is to show incompetence in human systems like you're 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 going to win some of the time. Yeah. Like, and then like, and this is, the, I probably shouldn't make this analogy, but it's like, the, but the terrorists only have to win once. <laughs> it's, like, it's like these academic journals or just in general, these kind of credibility um, sources that we sort of think of are, are publishing daily or quarterly or annually or whatever they're publishing is. And they're, they're doing the hard work of kind of, surfacing the right information and checking it and all that and and then somebody can come by and kind of toss a wrench into it and on most occasions it'll get filtered out and the one time it doesn't um it's then held up as kind of a a, a tarnish on the entire thing um and an entire infrastructure which is not to say that the infrastructure is spotless so much as is like well human systems are flawed yeah and this is true, not just with every conceivable government and intellect system of intellectual progress and science, but also actual system systems, which is part of how you end up with these issues like Facebook's problem of content moderation, um, which I think right. we could do a little bit of a bookend with. Uh, right. Well, exactly. And, you know, the one that really jumps to me, you know, you brought us in on sort of the, these Facebook conversations, but the one that's actually been, and I think the, the CEO of Google recently had to testify in front of Congress about this. The one that really comes to me is this kind of, um, there was a, I'm, I'm going to put it in a quote mark study, not because I'm trying to, um, I think that the person who did this study actually, I, I think essentially quotes it as a study also has, has said that, look, this is not a scientific study, but basically just um, did a Google search on Trump and found that 96% of the the results out of the, and by 96%, I mean 96 out of 100 results, which basically means you went through the first uh, 10 pages of the results, uh, were all um, ca categorized as left-leaning news sources. Mm -hmm. I'm always a little uncertain whether you call, like, if you say CNN is a left-leaning news source or not. Um, I would say that, and the New York Times is a left-leaning news source and things like that, which is that, that there's a subjective thing that you say to the left-leaning news source. I think it's, it's safer to say the way that I've heard, heard it maybe more so is sort of mainstream media news sources, mm -hmm. um, which right now are kind of um, in many cases being uh, categorized as left-leaning. Um, but that basically is saying like, you know, well, 96 out of 100 results are coming from mainstream media. So there's an there's a, um, a bias in the Google algorithm. There's a, a liberal bias in the Google algorithm. Um, and it really is calling to task this idea of systemic moderation in 
what has really become our primary content moderator for the internet, which is Google, at least the American, uh, the primary content moderator for um, Americans, which is Google. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a system there that does have bias because you can't not have bias when you're saying we've got to put something in this aquarium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, way to bring back the aquarium. Man, I thought we'd... Yeah. <laughs> we, we had wandered far from that one. <laughs> exactly. Well, I thought it was a profound metaphor. Um, no, but, I, but you know, I think it's important. To, I mean, there's some context you can give to it. Is, well, how does Google make its um, moderative decisions? Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, you know, like, this is, I think, is a, a key part of kind of anytime we have these kinds of conversations is really thinking about like, well, what is the bias? Like what is the, what is the implicit um, operational bias that is underneath um, the way that Google structures its algorithm? Because I think, you know, a lot of people don't <clears throat> necessarily think about how an, an algorithm is constructed. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of cases, an algorithm isn't initially constructed by, um, you know, like there isn't randomly constructed. It's it's often started with hypotheses or assumptions or um, some some base operational definitions about what credibility is. Mm-hmm. For example, um, so for example, like Google, just to use kind of uh, one example, is anything with a .gov uh, URL is always elevated um, in the Google algorithm. It's like .gov almost always wins, right? It's 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 a, it's a bias that Google has hard coded into its algorithm, saying that basically if it's a .gov website, it has more credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, basically saying that the so what that means is that it's basically anybody who has control of the U.S. reins of government is given a broader, more credible um, digital footprint according to Google, and you say, and generally speaking, that hasn't been a strongly argued point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's you wouldn't say throughout history that every government should always be seen as more credible than this than this um, than its citizens. Right. Like you can go back through history for quite a ways and say, actually, there's a lot of governments that have been tyrannical. And you wouldn't necessarily say what we want is for the way that information to gets to get out there is for the government to be the um the implicit master of information or the implicit like um say or you know end confirmation of this does that make sense yeah yeah yeah. no absolutely that you know just because a government is is powerful and knowledgeable doesn't necessarily mean that they will be the the most credible but there's a tendency in that direction anyhow and that tendency then becomes reiterated in the algorithm Exactly. I mean, I mean, picture somebody Googling, does the sun uh, circle the earth in Copernicus's time? And the answer would have been, well, you know, yeah. like Italian dot, <laughs> what is it? ITA, it's, it's, it's solar system dot ITA would, yeah. have, <laughs> would have come back as a no. <laughs> yeah. And then you and, can, you uh, can and where do you live? Yeah, what what yeah. did Copernicus have the internet? And, you know. <laughs> that, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite a, it, it's a real right. rabbit hole. Right, exactly. Well, <laughs> right, well, we won't go into, but, but that's what's inscribed at the base. That's one of the, one of the things that's inscribed at the basis of Google's algorithm, right? Is the government is, the government is more credible, right? right? Um, and so that's, that's just a basic assumption. Uh, uh, apocalypse or utopia as our moderation becomes increasingly 
free market? Yeah, well, I, I don't. I wouldn't even say that. Like, I, I feel like a free market is like the ocean model. <laughs> We're not, right? And, and, you know, a pocket <laughs> right. utopia. It's actually incredibly, incredibly bound by by really narrow choices. Um, that's that's a fair point. But we should nonetheless make this choice. <laughs> what do we What do yeah. we think about the direction of moderation, uh, content moderation? Do we think that the yeah. current state of moderation as it exists? largely run by very large internet platforms, sometimes run by extremely thoughtful curators like Dr. Holterhoff. Um, do we think this is a tending, trending towards apocalypse or utopia? Whew. Well, so I'm going to make the case that um, we are large. Like, I'm going to I'm going to present something of a utopian vision at a time when it's sometimes no. Oh, wow, I was, uh, I was hard to go feel. the opposite direction. We might have trouble. Oh, there we go. Let me make, let me make just a, case. A, a short couple of minutes. Right. Uh, well, let me make a, let me make a case that we are moving towards, like, you know, there was this old model of kind of gatekeeperism, mm-hmm. you know. If the New York Times, you know, if the New York Times published it, even the New York Times slogan, like all the news fit to print, um, it was a double entendre in that it was both that would fit to print on it, but also that they saw as being fit to print, mm-hmm. um, which led newspapers in general to to have this kind of implicit editorial bias. Um, and that editorial bias could go, is was largely black box. Um, why Why was this fit to print or not? The systems that we're putting in place, while they are heavily debated, um, the underlying assumptions can actually be are fairly transparent. I mean, yes, Google's algorithm is hidden, but most people understand kind of how it functions. Get more links to it, and you know, you get more people to kind of cobble together around this particular form of content, and you start rising in the ranks. And that's largely, it's like, it's like democracy. It's the worst form of government, except for all the, all the others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a six, recognizing that they might turn into a three halfway through before it gets to an eight. Oh, goodness. Oof. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, maybe that'll be better. Maybe that'll be good. I was going to give it like a two or something. But, uh... <laughs> It's, it, it strikes me, I mean, in, in our current moment, and this really might be our current moment because maybe there will be a sort of uh, recoil. It just seems like the, the at least in the United States, um, the government and these, these large forms of information dissemination like Google or Facebook are at odds with each other. And that, yeah. uh, there's, there's this, a, there, in, in this struggle, you end up with a lot of sort of fake news getting thrown back and forth or like... You know, fake news about fake news being targeted at fake news called fake news. You know, kind of it, it right. Where you end up with like a, credibility involves a lot of different trust structures. You know, mm-hmm. that you know, like trusting a dot gov or, a, a, and those trust structures are so painstakingly built up, as we saw with Dr. Holterhoff. Um, yeah, but I think they can get broken relatively easily, and it just seems like we're in a, a, a position of a lot of breaking right now. It's true. So you're giving it like a two. Well, yeah. let me here. Let me let me try to convince you 
um, in this way. So uh, in during season one of uh, this esteemed podcast, you brought up this point about a Bitcoin, about one of the things you really liked about Bitcoin and why you thought it was a positive thing is because it made the concept of money overt, hmm. where before money was assumed, but now this is like making the overall, the assumptions of money and the underlying structures of money overt. Um, and I think what we're doing in this, in this debate over the way credibility is assigned and the way information is gatekept by systems, is we're starting to make these systems overt in what are these, what are the underlying assumptions about them. So even though we end up in fake news battling fake news battling fake news, in order to determine kind of how things are ultimately hashed out, we go through this kind of painful debate about determining the underlying assumptions. And the battles are over the underlying assumptions, but then those assumptions are the things that we can then kind of say, well, uh, Dr. Holterhofer's site, she has credibility. She's done the work. She, she has done personally done the work and the site itself shows that the work has been done in the sourcing that it has and things like that. Those are going to start being our assumptions again. So it's, it's versus the assumptions before, it was like, this guy's the editor of the New York Times. Well, it's like, okay, like, what did he do to earn that? He had, his family had a lot of money, or not the editor of the New York Times, the owner of the New York Times, the publisher, right? Mm -hmm. You realize that when you start scraping aside, the, when you start digging into each of those kind of credibilities, you realize how much they've been based upon assumptions that don't necessarily hold water. The publisher of the New York Times might be brilliant. The publisher of the New York Times might be a crook. It's not totally clear, but the size of the paper and the money of the paper makes it overt. Uh, makes it makes it implicit. Um, I think when we battle about the systems of moderation, we actually end up having to ultimately fight about the what we think credibility is. And if if in those situations when you battle about, well, I believe that the scientific method is is legitimate or not, or I believe that we should be sourcing or we shouldn't be sourcing or these kinds of things, rather than just about well, I think this guy is powerful or not. I think it it makes the process ultimately healthier. Just not mm. it's just a painful process to get there. I'm willing to ride along on your utopia bus. Um you know that <laughs> I need to I need to run off to teach before I'm late to this class. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I just I just I uh, stonewalled until you uh, conceded. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you as always. Uh look forward to next week. All right. Love you, ma'am. I love you. Bye. Bye.